It's good to be with you tonight as we continue um, our series on the I Am Statements of Jesus. Um, I just wanted to say real quick before we get started um, how much I love being a part of this church. I love being a part of this spiritual family. And uh, I want you to know that I truly count it an honor to be able to stand in this pulpit um, week after week and to teach God's word. Uh, I promise you it is an incredible privilege uh, that I don't take lightly. And so I love you. I appreciate you being here tonight. We are um, going to be in the book of John. Once again, all of the seven I am statements of Jesus are found in the book of John. Tonight we're going to be in John chapter 10, and we're going to read here in just a moment. Um, but last week, if you remember, we talked a little bit about the literary structure of John. He writes differently probably than any other author throughout the scripture. Uh, some of the gospel writers would write with certain rhythms, but John would write with a rhythm that we talked about last week where uh, there would be oftentimes an event that would happen whether that would be a, a miraculous thing, Jesus feeding the 5,000 or someone is healed or, you know, an exorcism, something miraculous happens. And then immediately after that moment, Jesus gives a teaching that kind of identifies with that or explains what's going on after that event happens. That's exactly what happens here in John chapter 10. In John 9, there's an event that happens where Jesus is walking through the city and on the Sabbath... Um, Jesus encounters a blind man. He was, he was born blind from birth, but he was also a beggar. He was poor. And scripture says that he cried out for mercy to Jesus, and Jesus comes over and he touches the man. He spits and makes mud and puts it over the eyes of the man. The man regains his sight. He goes off and he celebrates the goodness of God. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they begin to go and investigate what's going on. They begin to ask the guy what's going on. Who's this man that healed you and all these different things. They call his family members in uh, to give an account of, you know, was this man really blind? Is he making all this stuff up? And so they really put this man through the grills. And at the end of chapter nine, we come to a moment where the religious leaders are so frustrated with the man because he's not giving them the answers that they want. And so you see just this question after question. They are grilling this guy, and they're asking him things, and the man gets so frustrated in the moment. He gets so irritated. He is trying to celebrate all that God has done, and he gets so over the top at a certain moment. He says, listen, I don't have answers to your question. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. I don't know all the messianic fulfillments. I don't know all the theological implications. All I know is that I was blind. This man touched me, and now I can see. And the religious leaders of the day were so offended by that that they literally took the man and his mother and father, and they booted them out of the synagogue. Now, to be kicked out of the synagogue in a context like this, wasn't just to be removed from a church service, but it was literally, in effect, they were excommunicating the man from Judaism. This stuff had happened on the Sabbath, which was a violation of their law, and furthermore, he wasn't giving them the answers that they wanted, so they literally kicked this man out of Judaism simply because he was healed. He didn't do anything. He didn't violate anything. He just simply regained his sight after decades of not having his sight, and they removed him from the situation. And so immediately 
after this, immediately on the heels of it, minutes after, Jesus picks up in John chapter 10, and this is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, what you're going to hear over the next couple of minutes is about 36 metaphors that Jesus is using, and we're going to break those down. So don't get lost in the text. Just stay with us uh, here for a moment. Jesus continues, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." And this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus uses these metaphors and he's telling this illustration, the story. They still can't comprehend what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus breaks it down even further. He expounds on this story. So Jesus again says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, come, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that the sheep may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep. He who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and he scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay my life down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." And so, again, there was a division among the Jews because of these words, and many, said, many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane, why should we listen to him? And others said, there are, these are not words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so, in this statement here, Again, we have a lot of metaphors going on. And, and before we get into kind of breaking down and dissecting what's all going on, um, let, me, let me help us understand the importance of understanding Scripture in context. Um, anytime we go to approach uh, Bible reading on a personal level or study or anything like that, it's very, very important that we ask three primary questions. They're in your notes if you want to take a look. I'm going to just briefly go over this really quickly. But it's very, very important that we make a habit of doing this. Three very simplistic, very important questions that we need to ask. The first thing that we ask 
as we read scriptures, we need to ask, what did this mean in their time? And this is what I mean by that. When I'm reading any portion of scripture, I have to consider what is the author, the person who is pinning this information, what are they trying to communicate to the people? What does it mean to the people that lived in that day? What is the context? What's the geographical setting? What what are the politics involved? How would these people understand what's going on in this moment? The second thing that we have to ask is what does this mean for all time? So in other words, when we read scripture, we need to ask, what does it mean to these people? But then we need to ask, are there like timeless principles that can be applied all throughout human history that we need to pay attention to, spiritual principles? And the third thing that we need to ask is, what does this mean for me in my time? In other words, as I've read this and gone through these layers, the final place that I land is, what does this mean to me? Now, the trouble is, is that oftentimes, In westernized Christianity, we go backwards. We start with number three, saying, what does this mean to me? And oftentimes we stop there, let's be honest. But the trouble is, is that we can never fully understand and appreciate the value of God's word if we start there. But when we take scripture, we run it through these filters, when it does become practical application in our life, it means so much more. On Sunday, our pastor talked a little bit about uh, uh, Jeremiah, and he, he read some portions through Jeremiah 29. And if you remember, he talked about Jeremiah 29, 11 just a bit, uh, which says, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you and to prosper you for a hope and a future. And if we read that outside of understanding what's really going on in the moment, it means something that God has a purpose for us and a hope and a future. It means that. It absolutely means that. But we under, when we understand what is actually going on in the life of Jeremiah and in Israel, that they are literally under the judgment of God, being carried away, leaving everything that they've ever known, being trafficked all the way to Babylon to live in captivity for an entire generation— All of a sudden, when Jeremiah says, God has a plan for us, all of a sudden, it feels a little bit different when you consider that Jeremiah is likely writing this from a dungeon. All of a sudden, it carries a different kind of weight. So now I can apply and I can say, not only does God have a plan for me, but regardless of what I face, God has a plan for me. If God had a plan for the people of Israel as they face the literal judgment of God, Regardless of what I go through, God, the Spirit of God is with me and he has purpose for me. And so when we read something like John chapter 10, there are so many metaphors and so many different things that are going on, so many words at play. If we don't understand what these words meant to the original hearers of the text, then there's no way that we can really understand what it means to us and how it applies to us. Furthermore, it can get really dicey and really messy when we start to interpret things can lead to bad theology, bad teaching, all that kind of stuff. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to kind of just go through John chapter 10. And what I want to do is address all the metaphors that Jesus uses. And I want to talk about what it meant to the hearers, the original hearers. And then I want to talk about a little bit about how it applies to us and some of the timeless principles um, that we're going through. And so the first thing that Jesus speaks of is he speaks of the sheepfold. In the very first sentence, he speaks of the sheepfold. Now, there are a, uh, there, there's a lot of discussion about what the sheepfold 
actually is. Some people think it's, you know, Israel. Some people think it was the Pharisees. Other people think, you know, it's us. Some people think it's Judaism. Um, what, what I would, after, after much, much research, what I would suggest is that the sheepfold are people that are a part of God's eternal kingdom. People that have come into relationship with God, they are saved, whatever you want to call it, okay? Now, a few years ago, I was in Israel, and uh, all I wanted to do when I was in Israel is see a modern-day shepherd. It's all I wanted to do. Uh, th there were a list of things I wanted to do, but I really wanted to see a shepherd. Sarah Caber was on that trip with us, and that woman probably saw 42 sheep in that 10-day trip, and I saw zero. And every time that we were driving in the bus going from destination, Sarah would say, hey, Corey, a shepherd. And as soon as she said it, it was on the other side of the van, and I, and I missed it because we're like that far away out there. I missed it every single time. So when you go to Israel, you may not be able to see a shepherd, a modern-day shepherd, because they're, they're pretty rare. But let me tell you what you very probably will see. It's what they call a sheepfold. Okay, these are ancient structures, which, which actually some people still use today in, in different parts of the world. I have a photo I want to show you, uh, a couple of photos I want to show you of what a sheepfold may look like, just so you'll kind of have an understanding um, of what it looks like. This is a more modern day sheepfold. And basically all it is, is a, it's a sheep pen. That's all that it is. It's a place where the sheep can go in. It's about, it's a little bit higher than hip high. It's usually built with like thistle and rocks and different things like that. But oftentimes what you'll see in Israel is this next photo. It's a photo of a sheepfold that was made originally uh, kind of attached to a cave-like structure. And so there was like this cleft in the rock and they would kind of build rocks around it so that the shepherd, when he got all the sheep in, he could kind of go in and take shelter inside while the sheep kind of grazed right there in that thing. And so what would basically happen is that as shepherds were taking their flocks, the shepherd may say, you know what, I'm going to take my flock and we're going to go to the west end of town and we're going to go and let them pasture. Well, if he was out there while he was feeding the sheep and uh, the sun went down, the shepherd may look around to see if he can find a sheepfold so that he doesn't have to travel back home at night. Or if a shepherd has his sheep and he's going from the southernmost part of the, you know, Israel to you know, the middle part of Israel, he may travel a little bit one day and then find a sheepfold and hole up there for the night. Then the next morning, go to another sheepfold until he gets to his destination. These sheepfolds, if you see right here, this little opening here, this is a doorway. Literally, what would happen is that as the shepherds would get the sheep into the doorway, the shepherds, oftentimes, sometimes they would have like an apprentice with them. They would call a gatekeeper. But oftentimes what the shepherd would literally do, once he got his flock into the sheepfold, is that he would lay down in the doorway and he would sleep there overnight. The reason is not only did he not want predators to be able to come into the sheepfold and take his sheep, but he did not want sheep wandering out. So he was like this protective layer for the sheepfold. Now, the first metaphor in this scripture, Jesus uses two metaphors about himself. And the reason that I'm using both of these tonight is because although they're different metaphors, they're super connected. And to teach them differently, just it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But the first metaphor that Jesus uses is he calls himself the door. Now, when we see a photo like that, what you got to understand is that oftentimes um, these uh, sheepfolds, they would have, like I said, about hip-high wall structure around. And oftentimes what 
um, shepherds would do is on top of those structures, they would put like thistle or really, you know, tall thorns or some type of sharp material in the event that some type of predator would come that could leap over the fence, they would put that there as a deterrent. Uh, if you've ever been to a, um, another country, there, there are some countries in South America and Central America where when you go through some neighborhoods, um, they're, they're just really you know, rampant with crime and different things. Some of the homes and buildings you'll see, they have, they have fences around them or walls around them. And on top of the walls, they will have taken like, you know, a Mountain Dew bottle or a beer bottle and they'll break it and then they will cement the broken part up on top so that it acts as a deterrent in case somebody can scale the wall and get over. This is the same type of structure we're looking at. The reason that they would do that is because the shepherds wanted there to be one way in and one way out. And Jesus in this moment as he's talking about sheep coming in and going out, what he's saying is this. He's saying, if you want to truly inherit the kingdom of God, if you want spiritual salvation for your soul, there is one way and it's through me. Jesus is saying, I am the door. Notice he didn't say, listen, I'm a door. He didn't say, listen, there's 14 doors, take your pick. He said, I am the door. Right? Later, we will read where Jesus says, listen, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is a prequel to what Jesus will say later. He is saying, I am the door. As he's speaking to this, these religious leaders and these people that are listening, what he's saying is he's saying, listen, there is only one way in and one way out. You can't work hard enough to climb over the fence to get into the kingdom of God. The, the, the religion of Judaism was built on the precipice that you would earn your stripes into the kingdom of God. It was a religion built around works. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, listen, there's no climbing in. There's no climbing out. There's one way, and I am that way. I am the door. Right, And so Jesus almost acts as this barrier between the brokenness of humanity and relationship with the Father, right? And we see this all throughout Scripture. You remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, man, humanity, and God are in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship. The man and woman rebel against God. They sin against God. So God removes them from his presence and he puts a barrier, an angelic barrier between himself and between them. Later in scripture, you'll see where um, the Lord instructs Moses to build a tabernacle and then later um, kings will build uh, uh, temples of God. There was a place in these structures called the Holy of Holies. And they were separated by a curtain or a veil that some scholars estimate was up to four inches thick. And the reason, the rationale behind the thickness was they wanted people to understand the otherness of God. They wanted people to understand the holiness of God, that he is not like us, that we are separate from him. In this teaching, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, if you want into the kingdom of God, you've got to come through me. I am the barrier. I will let you in, but you've got to come through me. And in context, what he's doing, 
He's speaking to these religious leaders. He's speaking even to the blind man to some degree and the, the, the others that are listening in the crowd. But specifically to the, to the people of, the, the, uh, of Judaism, he says this. He says, not only am I the door into relationship with God, but I am also the door out of a works mentality with God. Does that make sense? A door goes two ways. It goes in and out. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, listen, you can't earn your way. I'm giving you a way out of this works religion, and I'm allowing you into a free relationship with God. And so this first portion where Jesus is talking about himself being the door, it is primarily focused on salvation and the kingdom of God. For the rest of this discourse, Jesus shifts his attention from talking about salvation and he shifts it like really what it is. It is a rebuke of all the spiritual leaders of Israel up to that point. Jesus takes aim and this is what he is frustrated about. He's frustrated that these men have just treated this poor blind beggar the way that they have, they have neglected him, they have rebuked him instead of caring for him and receiving him. And so Jesus then begins to build this contrast between what a good shepherd and a bad shepherd is like. And Jesus said the bad shepherd, and we'll get into all this, but Jesus talks about all this, but he says, but I'm the good shepherd and I've come to care and I've come to nurture and I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. And he goes on and on and on. And so once we get past the moment where Jesus is talking about salvation, he begins this discourse of rebuke to the religious leaders that are standing by listening. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is talking about thieves and robbers, he is speaking to the Pharisees that are standing right there in front of him. This is what he calls them, thieves and robbers. Now, Jesus' language is, is brilliant in this moment. Most people, when you read thieves and robbers, you just kind of glance over it. They're the same thing. They're synonyms, but they're not synonyms. There is no such thing as a career robber. There is a career thief. There is someone who is a professional thief, but no one claims to be a professional robber, right? They're two different, they're two different things on two different levels. What Jesus is saying here is that thieves are a little more methodical. Usually thieves have some type of plan that they're going into, right? Their mentality is, look, I'm going to grab the loot and I'm going to scoot, right? I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm going to come in at night and swoop in and then I'm going to just get what I want and I'm going to get out. But he says, then there's robbers who are usually the people that really don't have a plan, right? It's just a smash and grab job and they're going to hurt anybody who gets in the way. So you got people that are like, um, uh, grab the loot and scoot. And then you got grab the loot and I may shoot. You know, you, you don't really know. But the point is, is that Jesus is saying, look, you religious leaders, he said, some of you are not good shepherds because you were methodical, because you were deceptive, because you're manipulative. You act a certain way and you get in relationally with these people, but you're not a good shepherd because your heart, the motive of your heart isn't truly to care for them. He says, but then you've got shepherd, bad shepherds that are just overtly bad, like the men that just kicked the blind man out of a religion, right, for being killed. So Jesus is saying, listen, these religious leaders, some are secretive, some are more overt, but nonetheless, Jesus is calling them out 
because they had been poor spiritual leaders to the people of Israel. Now, this isn't the first time that God has dealt with bad spiritual leaders in Israel. When you read Jeremiah uh, 23, Jesus, the Lord speaks to the shepherds of Israel and he says, you have not attended to my people well. You have neglected them. You have allowed adultery and sin into the house of God, even into the most holy places. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 34 as, as the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel. The Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back those who have strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Jesus' comments about being the good shepherd in John 10 are a fulfillment. They are a rebuke of the same type of shepherds in Jeremiah 23. But they are a messianic fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 when he says, I myself will shepherd my own people. And so we shift from the, the robbers and the thieves, the spiritual leaders of Israel, and we shift really quickly to the sheep. Now, if you're anything like me, you have been raised like in, you know, in churches and in cultural settings where we have this mentality that, that sheep are just inherently moronic animals. They're just dumb, right? Um, they don't have a lot going for them. The reality is, is that sheep, on some levels, they are unintelligent. Okay, we'll talk about that. But on other levels, sheep are incredibly intelligent. Um, there are studies that are done on, on sheep. Um, they, they are, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I want to point out the most is that sheep have a high emotional intelligence. Okay, now I know that sounds like I'm making that up for a, an animal, okay? But let me help you understand that animals have an emotional capacity, You've seen elephants, you've seen different uh, types of animals that will mourn the loss of, of counterparts or their children, different things like that. Um, sheep tend to have a higher level of emotional intelligence than a lot of other creatures. They're, they're intelligent as far as like they're, they're understanding their body and understanding what they should and shouldn't do. Um, sheep have been uh, monitored Perhaps the sheep may have an infection uh, somewhere in their body. Sheep have been known to avoid eating certain types of vegetation because it would flare up that infection and go to other types of vegetation that would be medicinal for their bodies that otherwise they would, they would never eat. And so on some level, um, uh, sheep can be intelligent when they need to be. I was reading one article and uh, it said, people say that sheep are dumb and sheep are not dumb. Uh, sheep are as smart as pigs, you know? And I thought, I don't know if that's a compliment. Like, I don't know if that's, if that's helpful, helpful or not, but I guess in the animal kingdom, it is. However, in other ways, sheep are not intelligent, right? Sheep have been, I mean, observed for decades and decades Sheep have been known, as their shepherd is guiding them, to literally just walk off of a cliff. Just as they're grazing, just to kind of lose track of what's going. Apparently, they're very nearsighted, and so they just kind of fall off a cliff. Um, I was reading a book one time that was talking about the behavior of certain types of animals. It was talking about sheep, and they were talking about the, uh, the, the follow-the-leader type mentality. And they were doing this survey, this study, where they were in a land that had a shepherd that had a lot of sheep. And they had the sheep all falling in line, following their shepherd. 
as they followed their shepherd, one of the people came and they took a log and they dropped it in the middle of the line. So if the sheep are going this way, they dropped the log right here. Well, the sheep, naturally, they were following the leader, so the sheep began to jump over the log. It, it was small enough they could jump. They began to jump over a log. After about a dozen or 20 jumped over the log, they removed the log, and guess what happened? They still kept jumping, right? They just, oh, I don't know what's going on. You know, they were following the leader, and so in some ways, they're very defenseless. They're, they're very unintelligent, but this is what's important. When Jesus is talking about the sheep, he's talking about the blind man. He's talking about the people of Israel. But he's also talking about this other people that are not yet a part of the fold that I'm going to bring into the fold, which is us. Amen. And regardless of, you know, how we want to paint sheep out to be or anything like that, um, let me just say this. Regardless of their IQ, their level of intelligence, in the eyes of God, sheep are incredibly valuable. Sheep in Middle Eastern cultures were incredibly lucrative. Not only would, could you sell their wool, which was probably you know, the thing that would grow back and it was probably the most lucrative thing, that uh, most valuable part about it, but you could also take the meat of a sheep and eat it. You could take the milk of a sheep and drink it. But even beyond that, there has always been some type of connection with God in this that many shepherds would simply raise sheep for one purpose, for those sheep to be sacrificed on the day of atonement for the forgiveness of sins. And so in the eyes of God, sheep are incredibly valuable. I think that sometimes when we think about, you know, especially when scripture uses metaphors like, like we're sheep, you know, it makes us feel like, well, out of all the animals, you know what I'm saying? I would have loved to have been a cheetah or like a tiger or something awesome like that. But the Lord chose to call me a sheep. And oftentimes I think what can happen is that as we go through life and we find that people get frustrated with us through life and we have our own self-esteem issues and all these kind of things, I think oftentimes we can develop this mentality that God just somehow tolerates our being. He somehow just like tolerates our presence, right? He's like, well, you know, they came through the door of Jesus. They're a part of the flock, but, you know, here's Corey again, this moron. But I guess he's my son. So, I mean, I love him, but I don't really like him, right? That, that's like a prevailing mentality with, with so many people that God just kind of tolerates our presence. And I just want to remind us, I know that you know this, but let me just remind you of what God says through his scriptures about us. I remember reading in John, first, or John chapter one, and I remember one of the first times that I read this, it was the most powerful, potent, game-changing moment for me when I read this scripture. It reminded me of how beloved I am. Scripture reads this, to all who believed in Christ and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. We're reminded in scripture through David's writings that we are the apple of God's eye. We are reminded by Paul that we have the honor that God counts us so worthy that he calls us the temple of his Holy Spirit. We're reminded that God through Christ paid an incredibly high price for us. 
Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we are the, the workmanship of God, the, the, the masterpiece of God, that we were knit together in our mother's wounds by the hand of God and that he cares for us. Romans 8, 39 reminds us that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to me remind you of something. Not only are we known intimately, but we are loved individually as if there were no other children of God on the planet. The Lord cares for us in such a measure that when we truly have a revelation of that, our lives will never be the same. This is an incredibly subjective example I'm going to give you. But I know that the Lord loves me. I'm not always convinced of that. I struggle. But I know there are times where the Lord reveals his love to me in a, in a very unique way. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife decided for Christmas, um, we bought our entire family um, a trip up to somewhere in North Carolina, and we were going to go snow tubing for the day. And we did, and it was amazing. I highly recommend it. My kids were, it was just amazing. Well, my three youngest girls, they've never seen snow in their life. And so we thought this is going to be incredible. Even if there's no snow, you know, it'll be man-made snow, whatever. It'll just be so much fun. So we get up there and we have to stay the night before the next morning uh, to meet our appointment. And as we're, we're laying in the hotel room, I'm checking the weather. And I get so excited. And I tell my wife, I say, baby, there is a 70% chance of snow during our time. Like during our time, and it's only for like three hours, it is during our time. And I am so excited. She's thrilled. We've told the kids and everything like that. About an hour goes by and I check the weather app again. And it's dropped from 70 to 60% chance of snow. I'm like, that's still do That's good. That's good. We're safe. We're safe. About an hour goes by and I check it again. And it's gone from a 60% chance of snow to a 60% chance of rain. I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. At this point, I'm no longer telling my wife what's going on. I'm just like, she'll live in faith, you know. Um, we're laying there. Another hour goes by and I check the weather app again. And it's gone from 70% chance of snow to 60% chance of snow to 60% chance of rain to 0% chance of anything. Nothing. I'm like, what? How does that even happen, you know? And so I'm, I'm laying there, and, and I just, I, I prayed a simple prayer. It was, it was the most simplistic prayer I've ever prayed. I said, Father, I said, I know that snow doesn't mean a lot in the grand scheme of things. I know there's a lot going on in the world. I said, but Lord, it would mean so much to my girls. And I used this phrase. I said, it would be such a gift to my girls if they could see real snowfall tomorrow. So I went to sleep, I woke up in the morning, 0% chance of anything. We go out on the slopes, 0% chance of nothing. I mean, it feels like it's going to snow, but it ain't going to snow. We have a two-hour appointment, and about 25 minutes into our appointment, it begins to snow harder than I have ever seen it snow in my life. And I'm not talking like little flare. I mean, I'm talking like, I was like, ow, that hurts. It, I was like, is this hail or is this snow? You know what I mean? It was falling everywhere. And listen to me, for the next two solid hours, it did that. And listen, I was so excited. I didn't even think about the Lord. I was just like, this is amazing. My girls were like, ah, you know, trying to catch snow, all this kind of stuff. It was amazing. 
And about five minutes after it started, I'm, I'm telling you, I know this is subjective, but I'm telling you, I sense the Lord remind me, Corey, you asked me for a gift. And in that moment, I thought, Father, you do care about even the smallest things for us. It's not that he's got to shift the world. Listen, if, if it would not have snowed, my faith is not stained, right? Like I still trust in the Lord. But the fact that the Lord reminded me in the moment of something that I'd asked for as a gift, I thought was a very special thing. And I just wanted to remind us that the Father cares for us on that level. He cares for us at this level. I mean, in a big way. But Father cares for us at the most minute levels. And we need to be reminded of those things, even though, even though, even though we are oftentimes sheep. And so Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd of these sheep. Right? In Old Testament scriptures, uh, uh, priests and prophets and kings, they were all identified as shepherds. David, the scripture says in Psalm 78 that David shepherded the people of Israel with integrity in his heart and he guided them with skillful hands. And so, as Jesus is the good shepherd at this level, Jesus is the capital G, capital S, he is the, the, the good shepherd. He also calls spiritual leaders to be good shepherds over the flock. He, he does things for us, but expects spiritual leaders to replicate those things, to mirror those things in the lives of the flock as we continue to shepherd them. And so really quickly, what I want to do is I want to run through with you five quick things that shepherds do, that good shepherds do, that these bad shepherds did not do, that Christ the great shepherd does, and that we as spiritual leaders do. Number one is this, good shepherds offer affection. Throughout history, secular history, Christian history, whatever, shepherds were known for the, for the almost odd, the strange affection that they would show their sheep. Oftentimes when, when shepherds would bring their sheep into the, the sheepfold, there, there are documentaries you can, you can read or watch on this, they, they would oftentimes just comb through the wool of uh, looking for ticks, looking for any type of scrapes or infections, anything like that. Oftentimes they would go through and just pick out like, you know, dirt or leaves that had uh, uh, kind of uh, collected throughout the day, ticks or whatever. Um, oftentimes uh, shepherds would give sheep individual names so that if one were going astray, he could call and the, the sheep would hear his voice and the sheep would respond to his voice. The trouble is, is that these men, these, these poor shepherds had not cared for the people of God, but Jesus was coming to reveal a new type of shepherd. And he was saying, listen, this new type of shepherd I'm going to give are going to be ones who understand the flock. They're going to care for the flock. They're going to attend to the flock in the same way that that the good shepherd cares, these good shepherds are also going to care. Number two, good shepherds offer nutrition to their sheep. Jesus, even in this portion, he talks about how um, he, he will let them in and let them out and they will go and they will pasture. When David in Psalm uh, 23, he talks about uh, uh, being a sheep led and going out to good pasture. Um, these men, according to, to Old Testament scriptures, they were so focused on feeding themselves that they neglected everybody else. And Jesus is saying, when I show up, I am going to give spiritual meat and I'm going to require, not just expect, I'm going to require these good shepherds at this level to feed my sheep. Remember, uh, as Jesus is restoring Peter, what is he asking Peter? He's saying, will you feed my sheep? 
Feed my sheep. It's not a question, it's a command. He's saying, listen, if you're gonna operate at this level, you've gotta be a man who will be willing to feed my sheep. I'm telling you this, in our culture, in, in a biblically illiterate culture, we have grown so accustomed, even in the Christian church, to snack food that when we're fed a meal, it makes us sick. And listen to me say this. Now, I don't think that's true of this church. I, I truly don't. I don't say that out of arrogance. I just don't think it's true. I think there are a lot of good churches that feed meat. But I'm saying on, on a grand scale, it's really not like that. And I'm telling you this, this is what I believe. I think the pandemic has changed the world fundamentally. I think so much is different. And I'm telling you this, what I've started to see, like not just here, but I've seen across the board, I have seen Christians who are, who are really about their relationship with Christ. They are moving away from the Cheetos and the lollipops and the soda. They're moving away from that and they're looking for the ribeye, right? They're, they're coming to a place and they're like, I need the meat of the word of God, right? Listen, I know we preach long at, at our church, but I'm telling you, it's not because we feel like we have to fill time. It's because there is a lot going on inside and there is so much in this word that the, that the church, not our, I'm saying the grand church doesn't understand, grasp and comprehend. And so when our mentality as pastors, it's like the, the, the world has our people for hundreds of hours a week, we've got an hour. What can we just dish out? And so I'm gonna just tell you, when I step into the pulpit, my mentality isn't to feed the sheep, it's to gag the sheep. I'm like, I wanna give them so much of the word, they're like, uh, you know, I wanna gag them. I want to give them enough food where they'll be able to sustain for a long time. That's why I read long portions of scripture. That's why a pastor preaches for an hour. I'm just telling you this. And I know that, that some, I'm not saying, I know this sounds like I'm being defensive. I'm not, I need to calm down. I'm just saying this. It's not because we feel this need of personal fulfillment to stand here and to feel good about something. It's a commission. It's a commission to, and, and that sounds so direct. Golly, I feel like I'm, you're, you're just like, I hate this guy. No, listen to me. The heart behind the shepherds, at least I know for a fact at this church, and let me tell you what, the pastors of this church are good shepherds. Every one of them. And I'm so grateful to God for that. But, but I'm, just, I'm just reminding you. So, so when, I pre when we preach for a long time, we kind of go over or we le read a lot of scripture. And you're like, is this guy going to read the whole Bible tonight? When you start to feel that way, okay, just be reminded that that's what a good shepherd does. He doesn't throw out snacks. He doesn't always just say things that make me feel good. He does say things that make me feel good. But he also says things that oftentimes bring conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's okay because it's not about that. It's about the maturing of the body of Christ. So that as Peter said, we can go from the milk of the word of God to the meat of the word of God. Right? And so we are, uh, uh, good shepherds are those who offer nutrition. Number three, good shepherds are those who offer protection. Uh, in the life of David, you can read accounts where David, the Bible literally says as a young boy, like a teenage boy, that lions and bears tried to attack David's flock and he rips them apart with his hands. That's a grown man 
Like he may have been 13, but I like got so much respect for him. I'm like, how do you beat up a lion with your bare hands? That's the mayor. How do you hurt a bear with your bare hands? Um, and so we see this notion of this Old Testament principle that shepherds are those who protect their flock. Now, Jesus steps onto the scene with these shepherds. And if you notice something, these poor shepherds, they are not trying to fight for their flock. They're not trying to defend their flock. They're fighting with their flock, right? And Jesus steps in to defend his flock, right? And Jesus says, furthermore, not only am I here in this physical moment to protect, but this is what Jesus says. He says, somebody who really doesn't care for the sheep, they're going to flee, they're going to run when evil comes, when temptation, when, when bad things come, they're going to run. They're going to, they're going to cut and run. But Jesus says this. He says, I don't care when pure evil comes. When the enemy of your soul comes for your soul, I will never flee. And I will fight for you, but I will fight in a different way by laying my life down so that you can have fullness of life. And so Jesus sets this example for us. Number four, real quickly, good shepherds also offer direction. Oftentimes in these sheepfolds, what you'll see is that there would be oftentimes three or four different flocks that would come together in one sheepfold to stay the night or for a couple nights or whatever. And what you'll see, Jesus he makes this case that when the shepherd himself, he steps out of the sheepfold and when he calls the name of his sheep, they hear his voice and recognize his voice. But when others call their name, they don't even recognize the voice of strangers, right? And so I was reading this book one time by a guy named Lynn Anderson. He wrote this book about, about shepherding and all this kind of stuff. He did a lot of observation and scientific studies about shepherding, shepherds, and all this stuff. And he was talking about this fascinating thing. He said that, that one day he was on a hillside. He was observing these, these uh, two groups of uh, herds. And he said that there were two roads and there were two shepherds leading each herd, and they converged in the middle of this, this dirt road. It, it was two roads that became one. They greeted each other, they talked a little bit, they walked along, and then at some point, this road veered off and this road veered off. They parted their ways and the shepherds got to a certain point where they were going and they turned around to their flock. And the man said that he listened and he watched as the shepherd on the left called out to his flock, and all of a sudden, the sheep that were intertwined began to follow his voice. This is real life. This isn't fiction. This is an observation. The man on the right calls out. He says, whoop, whoop. And all of a sudden, this whole different group of sheep begin to follow the sound of his voice. Jesus, in this moment, isn't speaking foolishly. He's saying, listen. As a good shepherd, I will give you direction and you will hear my voice. My true sheep will hear my voice. And, I, and, and I'll say this, the main ways that we hear the, the voice of God today is through the scripture, through his Holy Spirit, and through spiritual shepherds. 
And God uses these, and when we hear his voice and we heed his voice, we are then reminded that we are truly among the flock of God. And so God, uh, good shepherds offer direction. And then finally, number five, and I'm gonna let you get out of here. Number five is this, is that good shepherds offer correction. When I was growing up, I'll tell this last story and I'm done. When I was growing up, um, remember I told you the story about how I set fire, like a forest fire, my two cousins that were with me. I had uh, one of those cousins, I spent a ton of time at his house. He was probably seven or eight years older than me. And he had this, this painting that was hung in his room from the time that I can remember. And it was a painting of a young shepherd boy. It had to be like a teenage shepherd boy. And in the painting, he had a staff in one hand, and around his neck, he had like a little lamb, a, a small infant-type sheep, and it was straddled around his neck. He was holding the staff in this hand, and with his left hand, he was kind of holding, you know, to make sure that the sheep could not fall off. And it's a very popular painting, but in some renditions of the painting, the sheep that is hanging around his neck on the, on the front on one of the front legs of the sheep, there's a bandage that's wrapped around it. And so I, I inspected, I did, I did some research years ago, and what I found out is that um, oftentimes it was very common for shepherds that when they had small lambs that they were trying to train just to kind of, you know, go with the flock and to follow everybody, they would have their staff. And little ones, just like little children, they would often go their own way, right? Like we, like sheep, have all gone astray, right? Little ones just kind of go astray and so they'd take their staff and they'd kind of, you know, nope, stay with the flock, stay with the herd, you know. And so a little while later, it would kind of go, and nope, stay with the flock, stay with the herd, and kind of, you know, shift them in and all these kind of things. But at a certain point, if this shepherd felt like this sheep was either going to hurt himself or hurt one of the other members of the flock, it was common for a shepherd to take that little sheep and to take his staff and to take his leg and to strike it. And when he struck the leg, sometimes it may fracture or break the leg in like the most severe circumstances, but oftentimes it would just bruise or damage the leg. But the shepherd was so intent that he wanted to damage the leg enough that the sheep could not walk on its leg on its own. And then what the shepherd would do is he would take the sheep, he would hoist it over his shoulder, and for the next days or weeks or however long it took until the sheep could walk on his own again, the shepherd would carry him to every destination that they were going. And what is revealed in that in the life of Christ is not only his love and care and correction for the sheep, but it's his commitment to the sheep. It's this whole idea that God is willing to chastise us and he's willing to discipline us. He's willing to allow some things to happen that we don't want to happen. But we are always and forever reminded that all things are filtered through the fingers of the Father. We're always reminded that even when discipline comes, he doesn't discipline us and cast us away to be fed to the wolves. He disciplines us and pulls us closer to him which is the antithesis of what most human beings would think. And so as we look at all these things that, that uh, shepherds do, um, correction is perhaps the least loving 
or, or at least in our minds, the least loving thing. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this. Good shepherds at this level know how to correct people in the flock in such a way that oftentimes the people in the flock walk away not even knowing they've been corrected. I remember, I remember the first pastor I ever worked for. He was not mean or a tyrant or anything like that, but he would confront you. No, no means about it. He, he didn't care. And um, I remember one day he... he he came and confronted me over a certain situation and I said, yes, sir. And, you know, I dealt with it. I walked out and I remember going home that evening and I told my wife, she said, well, well how did it go? Did he talk to you? I said, yeah. I said, uh, I think he called me an idiot, um, but I feel good about it. You know, I was like, I was like, I kind of am, you know, I was like, I was just, I think he like corrected me, but man, I really feel good about it. And I want to tell you this, the best spiritual shepherds, the best good shepherds at this level, they know how to discipline in such a way where you walk away, though you may walk away slightly wounded, you walk away feeling good about the wound. You walk away in a way that's saying, I am going to be better for this. I am ultimately going to be better for this, even though it may not feel like this in the moment. So Jesus uses this incredible illustration, and he does so with these poor spiritual shepherds, these poor spiritual leaders that are here. And I can almost hear them say from the back of the room, what gives you the right to speak to us in this way? Now, his divinity aside, Jesus answers them four different times. And he says this, he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. 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 And because I've laid my life down for the sheep, that gives me the authority to talk to you about what a true shepherd is really all about. Because a true shepherd is not in it for their gain. They're in it for the gain of the flock, which is what Jesus was in. When Ryan gave that word, I thought she has no idea what she's saying right now because she is speaking my language because the Spirit of the Lord understood, understands that Jesus' part of his purpose in helping us grow in a closer relationship with him is understanding that he deeply, emphatically, unapologetically cares for you as an individual. He does say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. He does say, cast your cares upon me. He does come to us and say, anybody who wants to come, I will receive, for I am the door and I am the good shepherd, and he has the authority to do it and to give us that abundant life. Amen? Amen. 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 If you'll stand with me real quick, I'm six minutes late. I want to pray for you, and I want to apologize as I pray. I am so sorry, and I love you. Let me pray. Father, we bless you tonight. Thank you for being our good shepherd. Thank you for being the door of salvation. Thank you for the abundant life that we have. Thank you for your deep, compassionate, understanding care for us. I pray this week that every person would have a fresh revelation of that sometime this week to understand that you take pleasure in us and that you love us so deeply. We love you back and we bless you, Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you. Have a fantastic week. We will see you Sunday.